Hello there, everybody. This is Father Tom Provenzano welcoming you to another episode of the Acts Podcast. Today we're going to be looking at the reading, uh, the gospel reading from uh, the sixth chapter of Luke for this uh, seventh Sunday in Ordinary Time and uh, presenting what I believe is really our Lord's most challenging uh, teaching, which is the need to love our enemies and how that needs to happen both on what I'm going to call the, the macro level as well as the micro level. It's how we should view our dealings politically with the world and diplomatically with the world, but also how we, we deal with one another. And uh, before we get to that, let's get to this. We'll pray our Hail Mary together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. So at the end of uh, last year, just uh, right after Christmas, Desmond Tutu passed away. Desmond Tutu was the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town. And previous to that, Johannesburg, he was an African, a, a black African who uh, was archbishop in a segregated, what we call apartheid nation. And he stood very firmly as a sign of resistance to the racist government. And he came to prominence certainly in the 80s worldwide. I mean, he had been known in, in South Africa previous to that. But he won the Nobel uh, Peace Prize and in his efforts to, to exact change and bring justice to that uh, to that nation, and he very much walked in that tradition of of a Martin Luther King or a, or a Gandhi, in the sense of trying to seek peaceful, nonviolent, direct action against uh, injustice, and in this case, the racial injustice, which uh, was the law of the land in his country, and there's a story of. Uh, from when he was a young man, uh, before he entered uh, into uh, the in, into the clergy, where he was, uh, it tells the story that he was walking down a, a street one day, and these two very large, kind of burly white men are coming the other direction down the sidewalk, and uh, you know, as they get closer, he can kind of tell that these two men are not happy to see him. Uh, and uh, you know he he was a uh, he was a man of letters, <laughs> not necessarily a man uh, accustomed to having to defend himself physically, and you know wondering how he was going to kind of deal with this situation of uh, two men who were kind of coming toward him rather deliberately, and again not looking happy to see him. And finally, when they got you know kind of close up toward each other, the one of the men said to him, "Get out of my way! I don't." You know, get off this sidewalk. I, I don't make way for a monkey. And Desmond Tutu, without missing a beat, just stepped aside and with a wave of a hand said, yes, but I do, and to signal the man to go. And immediately the, the man was kind of dumbfounded and didn't quite know what to say and kind of walked off in a, in a huff. In a way, what... Uh, Desmond Tutu was demonstrating there was something that our Lord was trying to get through to us in the gospel reading for 
today, uh, the seventh Sunday in ordinary time. Uh, we're, we've been hearing uh, the last couple of weeks from what's called Luke's Sermon on the Plain. It's the sixth chapter of uh, Luke's Gospel. It's sort of the counterpart to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And uh, here Jesus gives us the really striking and difficult teaching of loving our enemies, of not loving simply those who love us, but of actually loving our enemies and seeking their good. And he, he makes these, you know, again, rather stark and striking commands upon us, that if someone strikes you on one cheek, offer him the other, and if someone takes your coat, uh, give him your, your tunic or your coat as well. And again, these things kind of shock us. And I, I do have to say that I, I, you know, people will ask me, what are the, what's the most difficult teaching in Christianity? And they assume, I think I'm, I'm going to talk about the church's teachings on human sexuality and marriage. And no, I think this one is, I think that the, the, I don't think there's even really any doubt about it. The commandment, the injunction that we're to love our enemies is the most difficult. And on the face of them, the idea of, of you know, turning the other cheek and of giving your, your cloak as well as, you know, giving your, your shirt as well as your coat, essentially, is what Jesus is telling us to do, seems rather absurd to us and seems rather silly and, and seems un, untenable. But in, in a way, Jesus is showing us how to resist aggression in a peaceful manner. Because he's not telling us to be a doormat, but he's telling us in a way to embarrass our oppressor and to maybe try to to prick whatever conscience our adversaries may have and to show them the shame and the folly of their own course of action. And so it's been explained there, you know, I, one interpretation of Jesus' words here is that in the ancient world, uh, there was a way you hit somebody and a way you didn't hit somebody. <laughs> or more to the point, there's a way you hit a free man and a way that you hit a slave. And you didn't hit a, a free man the way you hit a slave. You know, the, the Romans were very much into this. If we go to the, the extreme, uh, if you were a citizen of Rome and you were convicted of a capital crime, then you were beheaded, because beheading was, well, first you were given the opportunity to to kill yourself. Uh, but short of that, then you were beheaded, because it was considered a quick and relatively painless way of dying. And quite often, if a person did uh, commit suicide, there would be, you know, there might be, he might actually have someone there with him to chop his head off, uh, you know, to shorten the, you know, the experience. But if you were not a citizen, if you did not have the rights of a Roman, you were crucified, which was a very long and drawn out and, you know, rather disgusting way of, of going. And it's sort of the same way here. You only hit a free person with the, with the palm of your hand. Okay. Striking, you know, 
you know, the, the right hand, let's say, you know, striking the left cheek. But if you offer the other cheek, then they're forced to hit you with the back of their hand. Okay, again, assuming the person is, is right-handed. But that you're, you're in just about, I'm sure everybody was forced to be right-handed back in those days. And so to force the person to hit you as if you were a slave would have even kind of repelled them a little bit. They would be hesitant to want to do something like that. But you're trying to stop them, arrest them in a way, and and make them think and shame them. Okay, To take someone's cloak is bad enough, but to say, oh, you want my coat? Okay, take my shirt too, why not? Why, why don't you? And take your shirt off and throw it to the person. Well, that person might you know, find themselves kind of embarrassed then because now it's leaving you, you know, in a sense, naked. I think of something Francis of Assisi did. Uh, Francis of Assisi's father was a, a, a cloth merchant and who had accused Francis of stealing cloth in order to give to the poor. I don't know if he sold it and then given the money to the poor given the cloth directly to the poor, but basically he was accusing them of stealing. And, you know, naturally, being Italians, and I can say this because I'm of Italian descent, you know, they don't do anything quiet or 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 small. They they play this drama out right in the middle of the city square, the town square of Assisi. And Francis, you know, being the impetuous sort uh, said, oh, you, you think I'm stealing? You're accusing me of stealing? Fine, here. I, I don't want anything from you. These clothes, these clothes came from you? Take them back. And he literally unrobed right there in the middle of the, the town square and threw his clothes back at his father. And the story goes that he's standing there naked in, in the middle of the, the square in Assisi, and someone came running up and threw a... a a, a robe on him, one of the a coarse gray robe uh, that today uh, we would recognize as a form of the Franciscan habit that has become so famous. I know the Franciscans themselves argue about was it gray, was it brown, what's the story, but we'll we'll stick in the in honor of the Capuchins. We'll 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 say it was gray. I always had a soft spot for the Capuchins, but anyway, the point being that in a way Francis was trying to shame his father. And uh, was using it as and through throwing his clothes back at him, and leaving himself naked was a way of kind of turning the tables, and 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 shaming him, and in a way that's what our Lord calls us to do. He calls us to be creative in the face of opposition, to not answer back fire with fire. He's not suggesting that we be passive. He's not suggesting that we just be doormats, but he's warning us that aggression is a road that can lead to chaos and confusion and more violence if it is chosen as the first option, if it is something that is entered into uh you know, without really thinking and meditating and understanding what the consequences can be, that we are called to 
treat the other as a human being, as one who was created in the image and likeness of God, and who may at that moment have that image deformed in a sense, but is still redeemable. Okay, And the idea here is not simply to win, but to win back a brother, even if we're from different races, from different nationalities, from different parts of the world. Now, the, the church has always allowed for self-defense, especially and specifically the self-defense of nations. And uh, we, go, we can go into what's called the just war theory and uh, the idea that there are kind of criteria that need to be met where aggression, and in this case, specifically military aggression, could be used. But again, we have to be very careful about it. And certainly the first condition is that all the other means of achieving peace and justice have been exhausted. All the other diplomatic ways and nonviolent ways of resolving whatever conflict you know might be brewing have been you know have been pursued first and it's very clear that the evil that we're trying to eradicate is something that if it's left to stand could have long term uh consequences evil consequences okay think of genocide think of yeah you know think of uh any other number of injustices that really uh, cannot be tolerated and really do need to be eradicated at that particular moment. And it really can't, justice demands that it not be put off. And, uh, you know, maybe, again, regrettably, maybe the use of violence is necessary in that particular instance. You know, when when we think of uh, nonviolent direct action, usually we think of Gandhi or we think of, of Martin Luther King. And what I would say is that in those two cases of the, the Indian independence in the, in the 30s and 40s, and then later the civil rights movement in the United States in the 50s and, and 60s, what both Gandhi and, and MLK were trying to do was, as I said, prick the consciences of the people who held the power and to kind of show them uh, and shame them, really, into understanding the immorality of their position and the necessity of changing. It's really possible, I think, for two reasons. You know, first off, because the people that they were up against the british and in, you know those in in power in the united states at that time uh had a conscience to prick <laughs> actually you know did have a conscience that could be appealed to and the ability to appeal to it because it wasn't just a matter of appealing to the leaders really the whole nation needed to be appealed to and so there was a free press that was able to promote and to and to communicate what was actually going on. 
you know, part, part of the reason why Gandhi was successful was that there was a, a free press. You know, again, the definition of freedom of the press in England is different than here in the United States. But still, a, a free press that actually was free to report on what Gandhi was doing and what Gandhi was saying. And he was actually permitted to visit England and to actually tour England at, at one point. And so, in a way, because of that freedom of communication and that freedom of press, people were actually able to see and hear what was going on, and consciences were changed. Consciences were affected, and opinions were changed. In the, in the case of the civil rights movement in the United States, again, there was, you know, there, there was a conscience there even among those who we would rightly call racists, maybe not for the, you, know, you could argue that for the real, real hardcore racists, their, their consciences have become so deformed that they were unable to see anymore. But for the majority of, of people who witnessed on television, for instance, protesters uh, being hosed down by high-pressure fire hoses and having uh, attack dogs uh, unleashed on them. Uh, th- these were powerful images that went a long way to really shaking the conscience of the nation and made possible, yes, after many long strides, after many struggles, after many losses, uh, the civil rights movement and the, and the various uh, reforms that came about because of, of that movement. On the other hand, I think of the White Rose Movement in Nazi Germany, which was a, a small group of, of college students and intellectuals who were trying to peacefully resist the Nazi movement. And a person who's sort of over the years become a, a, a symbol of the White Rose Movement was a young woman by the name of Sophie Scholl. And she and her brothers were eventually arrested in 1943 after distributing pamphlets and uh, were put on trial and were executed by the Nazi government. Sadly, they really, their movement and their sacrifice didn't really have an immediate effect on the German people. Because there was no free press, there was no free communication. The only thing there was was a very small article in the back of the newspaper talking about the execution of three traitors to the Reich without any real reporting on their trial, which I believe lasted like, you know, an hour. I I mean, their, their trial did not last very long. And it really wasn't till after the war was over that they really became known and their sacrifice uh, was able to be celebrated and to be appreciated. Now, I don't think, I don't think their, their sacrifice was in vain. I think any, any sacrifice we make has a, you know, for the greater good, has a spiritual effect that maybe we can't see on this side of the veil. And certainly I don't think 
uh, Sophie, but based on her her last words, would have thought that her sacrifice was in vain as she was being brought out to the guillotine. Yes, the Nazis used guillotines uh, in the twentieth century. Uh, she was able to look up at the sky and say, "The sun still shines." But yes, the sun still shines. Yes, there is still hope. Yes, maybe their life ends, but the hope of a better future lives on and is not so much dependent on them, but on good men and women everywhere rising up to do the right thing and to resist oppression and to resist cruelty to resist dictatorship. And so my, my sisters and brothers, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that I, th I think in the case of, of Nazi Germany, uh, military force was needed. And sadly, yes, we did need to go to war to end what essentially was genocide. Okay. This wasn't just, this wasn't just a, a country bent on conquest. This was a, an ideology bent on destruction. And it needed, it needed to, to end. It needed to stop. And maybe the, the method of nonviolent direct action wouldn't have been the best tool in order to stop that, that machine of death. But my sisters and brothers, while I, while I do believe that there, there are justifications, I do believe there are justifications for using military force, and, I don't, and while I think that certainly nonviolent direct action is something that should be the first and most persistent tool in our arsenal, for lack of a better word, uh, and while sometimes war is necessary, though regrettable, we better make sure what we're doing before we dedicate our women and men of the armed services to military action. There's an old saying that the first casualty of war is the plan, which is to say that once the shells start flying, once the bullets are fired, once the planes start dropping their payloads, anything can happen. And it usually does. And it's usually not good. And we're living in a time of warfare where quite often the death and destruction is not limited to the battlefield between combatants, but increasingly involves what we euphemistically call collateral damage. Civilians who wind up dead or maimed as a result of military action. And all sorts of ugly things that happen. And while, yes, in the, in the case of World War II, I, you know, I do think the Allies were on the right side. I do think we were fighting the good fight. It, it doesn't mean that, that there weren't 
you know, men, at that time it was mainly men, and almost exclusively men who went off to fight, uh, didn't end up have, having to do, they didn't, it doesn't mean that they didn't end up, some of them, doing some horrendous things. Because it's what war does. War warps us. And it turns, you know, ordinarily peaceful people into killers. And once that frenzy begins, you know, there's a term that they talk about the dogs of war. And I think it's so apt. Because a, a pack of wild dogs, once they're out there and once they're in a frenzy and, and once they're let loose, there's no telling what they're going to turn on and tear apart, including each other. You know, I, I don't say this idly and I don't say this as a... as a... Um, uh, theoretical statement. You know, it's, it's a story I, I I don't know that I've ever really told. But uh, a number of years ago, it's a long time ago now. It's it's over ten years ago. I you know found myself having dinner in an Applebee's in Linden, New Jersey. Shout out to Linden. And if you know anything about Linden, uh, it's a in that area uh, between Elizabeth and Linden, and it's just uh, south of of Newark. Uh, it's an it's a refinery town. There's big oil refineries there in 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 the Linden area. And so it wasn't uncommon if, you know, if you went to this particular place, this Applebee's, uh, that you would have kind of people that worked at the refineries, a lot of times people from out of town that were coming in, uh, people who worked for the various oil companies and refineries that were coming in from Texas or coming in from other, other places uh, that had business uh, there. Uh, in that in that area, and I found myself. It was it was late. I had had to go to a wake, and I hadn't had dinner, so I went to drop by, and it was kind of empty. The place was kind of empty. It was the middle of the week, and I went to you know drop in just to have a burger, and I kind of knew the staff there, and the staff knew me. They knew who I was. And I wasn't, you know, I had my kind of collar open, you know, you know, and a sweater on. So it, it wasn't necessarily, you know, I wasn't necessarily going to be recognized as a as a priest in that moment. And, and a gentleman comes and sits down next to him. He was an older gentleman. He looked, you know, I didn't really know how old he was, but it, I'm guessing he was at that time about in his in his sixties somewhere. But looked like, you know, a good shape and had a bright smile and, you know, seemed engaging. And he decided to strike up a conversation with me. And I talked a little bit about, yes, he worked for one of the oil companies, and, and I forget exactly what he, he did. And the conversation kind of kept going, and, you know, da-da-da-da. And then he, he started talking about his experiences in Vietnam. And he talked about a very specific situation, that he was in, in Vietnam. And it was around 1969, I believe. And there were, I guess, 
uh, communists who had, you know, taken base, used one of the villages as a base of operation uh, in order to go out then and, and ambush, uh, you know, various U.S. You know, I, excuse me for not really, I'm, I'm not a military expert or nor a expert on on the Vietnam War. So excuse me if my, my language is, is, if I'm not, you know, is not technically precise. But but basically the, the, the villages from what I could pick up were being used as kind of base of operations for kind of espionage activity. And specifically for, you know, targeting obviously U.S. troops, but also, you know, the killing of U.S. officers. And so he and a, a bunch of others of, you know, U.S. Uh, troops uh, took it upon themselves. They're going to go into this village and clean it up. And they went into this village and they cleaned it up. And they took everybody in the village. It was at night. And they, uh, I don't know if uh, it was a kind of a ditch that was already there or what it is, but they kind of gathered all the people into one spot, and they called in a helicopter. And the intention was that they were going to basically exterminate the village. And one of the commanding officers who had heard that this was going to happen showed up and basically ordered them to stop. And he was informed that he could either stand back or get in the ditch. Uh, But one way or the other, this was going to happen. And it happened, and uh, the village was was eliminated. And in, you know, in that moment, I didn't know what to really think or react. The funny thing was that I didn't really react emotionally until the next morning, <laughs> until I woke up the next morning, and I just like kind of processed what I had just heard. That, gee, I just had dinner with a with a war criminal, <laughs> essentially. And he wasn't telling this story in a boasting manner. This wasn't, it was, he was very matter of fact, but at the same time, he wasn't, um, it wasn't with any bravado. It was, again, very matter of fact, uh, almost documentary, you know, style. But then he talked about how after that, he became an atheist. And he became an alcoholic. And he lost his wife, you know, after coming back to the United States. And went through many years of wandering and of nihilism and of wanting to take his own life himself. And it wasn't until finding Christ that he was able to turn his life around and that he had tried to make, he didn't put it this way, but what I was sort of reading between the lines is that, you know, he spent most of the following, you know, 40 years uh, trying to make up somehow through his, you know, charitable work and involvement in his, in his church, uh, trying to make up for what it was that he had been a part of, and that what he had done. And uh, then he turned around and asked me, well, what do you do? (laughs) 
And then I told him, well, I'm a, honestly, I'm a, I'm a Catholic priest. And he kind of laughed, and he said he had been raised Catholic. Now he was, he was born again. Uh, but again, spoke, you know, wasn't a, you know, he spoke fondly of, of his uh, Catholic upbringing, but, uh, you know, had, you know, again, in the, in the, in the aftermath of this experience, had lost his faith, but, you know, gained faith in Jesus uh, through this, through this route. And I didn't know that this was an, op- this was a moment to start, you know, hammering him about coming back to the Catholic church or not, but, but he seemed to be happy to see me. And I've often wondered why it was that he opened up to me. Not not knowing who I was or, or what I was about, but it was it was something for me to say that war, as the old uh, cliche has it, is hell, and you know this seemed like a a very nice kind of grandpa. Quite frankly, he seemed like a gentleman. He seemed like a kind man, uh, but all those years ago, he was capable of being involved with really something horrendous. And who knows? Maybe if he had not been in that situation, you know, it, maybe he never would have lost his faith. Maybe he never would have descended into alcoholism. Maybe he never would have lost his marriage. And yes, you could say he's he's one of the lucky ones in the sense that, that he did regain his faith and he did come to understand, he did repent, he did come to understand the evil that he had done. Uh, but And he's lucky in the sense of how many don't. You know, how many have gone to war and experienced these horrible terrible things, and things not as horrible as that even, and maybe not cooperating in evil to the degree that, you know, this was clearly an evil, wicked act, uh, but yet who never get out of the bottle and never lose their nihilism and, uh, you know, die broken people. So we have to really think long and hard uh, before we set upon that course. And we really have to make sure that what we're doing is not going to cause more harm than the good that we're trying to accomplish. That civilians are not going to be targeted or affected. Uh, And that there is a reasonable expectation of success. That's just in in brief, or some of the uh, kind of bullet points of what the the just war theory talks about. Now, I've up to now I've really discussed what I would call the macro sort of aspects of of our Lord's teaching, but there is an interpersonal one as well. There is one that touches our lives. Uh, because, you know, we often think of enemies as being people who live far, far away. And we think of enemies, yes, as people we potentially could be going to war to, but, you know, or going to war with. But un- un- sadly and unfortunately, 
more and more we are becoming a divided people, a divided nation, a divided community. And yes, I think a lot of this has to do with the politicization of everything. And the fact that politics really does ruin everything. It really does. You know, politics in this sense. Politics as a tool of division and power. Rather than as a tool to help regulate and order the society in a just way. Right now, I don't, I don't think that that's really what politics is all about. Sadly, I think it really is just about power right now and about domination and about dividing. And we're looking at each other as enemies. Disagreements, and there's nothing wrong with disagreements if they're handled the correct way. Because it is possible for two honest people of goodwill to come down on opposite sides of a given issue. Maybe not every given issue. Maybe there are cases where the right and the wrong are very clear. But I think in most cases, though, there is room for debate. There is room for disagreement. There is room to doubt, quite frankly. <laughs> and we begin maybe by not being so sure of our own position. Okay, and maybe listening to the other. And of not making the other the enemy. Because we disagree on, especially matters of politics. What, what a useless thing. A useless thing to allow yourself to be separated from a brother or sister because of. And I'm talking about not just brothers and sisters in the Lord or, you know, fellow countrymen. Uh, but I'm talking about your biological brothers and sisters. It's useless. It's pointless. And in a lot of ways it feeds in to the worst aspects of political life today. And I, I think of, you know, social media, which is a great tool. Most of, you know, I, most of you know me, who are listening to me, <laughs> know me or are getting even this podcast through the modern miracle of social media, okay? The social media platforms are, are, are the sources of distribution, the main sources of distribution for this, uh, for this podcast, and they can be tools for great good. Uh, but they all can be, also can be ways of, of increasing division and animus and hatred. You know, when you, you know, blessed are those who have never been on Twitter. Blessed are those who have never been on Twitter. If you look at some of the, the conversation, the so-called conversation that goes on there, and just the vitriol and the hatred that uh, is spewed and is shared, and the venom. It really is, it's disgusting. And, you know, something that really could be wonderful. And there's nothing wrong with a lively debate. There's nothing even wrong with, uh, you know, a good, <laughs> a good well-crafted insult once in a while. When it's, when it's uh, done with maybe the tongue-in-cheek a little bit, 
And, you know, depending on the spirit that is given, think of what, uh, you know, Archbishop Tutu did with that uh, young man on the street corner that day that I mentioned at the top of the, uh, of the show. Uh, but at the same time, recognizing that the other person is a human being. And I think this is where I'm going to try to tie it up. I mentioned that this was the most of this loving of your enemy is the most difficult teaching that uh, Christ has given us. Even more than the teachings on human sexuality that seem to get uh, so much uh, press these days and are treated with so much derision by some. But I think what's at the basis of all of it, whether it's the church's moral teaching on sexuality or whether it's the, the church's social teaching or, or, you know, or teaching on economics, on usury, it's all really rooted in the idea that we are human beings created in the image and likeness of God, and we need to treat each other with that dignity. And to treat each other with less than that dignity is, is a sin against the other person. It's a sin against God. And in a way, it's, it's deforming the image of God that's within us ourselves. And a society that is really rooted in a godless way of dealing with one another, that ignores that image and likeness in the other person, is one that is just destined for division. And, you know, and especially our nation. Our nation is built, I'm talking about the United States now, our nation is built on the idea of people from many different places coming together. And I would argue not, not doing away with the old customs necessarily, but of harmonizing them and of, of somehow re, you know, maintaining our distinctiveness while at the same time banding together and joining together the things that unite us. You know, we have, uh, I live in a house with uh, men from all over the world. And I know one of them from Poland has really commented on this, how unique, and this is a man who has been in the missions and who's lived in other, you know, various countries in Africa and in Europe and in New Zealand and Australia. And he, he comments really on the uniqueness of the United States that way, that especially here in the northeastern United States, where you just go back two or three generations and people are coming from somewhere else. And there is this diversity of heritage, but yet we all come together and we form this unique people. And it would be a shame if that didn't endure and that didn't continue. Because I think that is what makes us special. And in a way, what makes us that that beacon, that, that light on the hill. Okay, I think if, if we could talk about the American experiment in a lot of ways. I think one of the one of the ways that we're an experiment is this how do you bring people from so many different places together and have them live united. Well, only if we recognize that most fundamental thing that unites us together, that we are children of God, whose light shines on the good and the bad, whose rains fall on the fields of the generous and of the greedy. And that he calls all of us to live as his children, recognizing that divine spark that is within all of us.
God bless you all. And until the next time, please pray for me. Know that I am praying for you. God bless all of you. Bye-bye. Thank you.